Hello, welcome to the Sentencing Council podcast, Sentencing Explained. My name is Peter McClellan, and I am the chair of the council. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Joining us today are two former members of the Sentencing Council. Howard Brown has been a victim's advocate for many years and we'll talk about his personal experience of crime and his work with victims and as a member of the council. Moira McGrath was for many years a community corrections officer and will share with us some of her insights and experience in that field and tell us of her time with the council. Howard, firstly to you, welcome. Thank you. And can you tell us how did you happen to become a member of the Sentencing Council? Uh, I think one of the things we have to do is put the whole process in context. From the beginning of roughly 1998 through to 2000, there was a very strong move. Uh, We called it a victim's movement, where inconsistency in sentencing was being highlighted. Law and order was becoming a constant election issue. And people generally were getting quite agitated about the lack of transparency and the lack of clarity as to how certain decisions were being made. And so myself, um, Ken Marsler, who was another foundation member, and Martha Jabour from the Homicide Victim Support Group, we went to the then attorney, Bob Debus, with the support of Bob Carr, and said, what you need to do is you need to consult far more widely than you currently do. Why don't you set up some type of organisation which pools all those resources so that all the players involved actually get to have a say. Bob Lubis was a, a little hesitant to start with, but then I think he started to appreciate that even though uh, myself and, and Ken especially were somewhat rabid, um, we, we did actually have some realistic expectations and then all of a sudden, the government announced the setting up of the Sentencing Council under um, Alan Abedi and, and Jack Slattery. Um, Jack Slattery had so much wisdom and had sat for so long within the judicial system, and yet he was such a practical person. And he was a real fatherly figure. And so it was very difficult for any of us who were a little overly vociferous to attack Jack because he spoke so logically and explained everything so beautifully. I'm not sure I've known anyone who wanted to attack Jack over it. (laughs) Your involvement with the whole issue of supporting victims starts, I think, with a personal tragedy. It it does. Um, I I lost a really good friend in 1988, three days after my father died. My father died on a Friday. Um, Andrew was murdered the following Monday. Uh, Andrew died protecting a young woman who was the victim of domestic violence. Because my father had died, I was not able to take this lass to work. And so I asked my friend Andrew to do it for me. And while he was trying to take this young lady to work, he was attacked by the offender. He was shot three times in the chest. The victim rang me, I was first on scene, and I actually had to give my friend a CPR, which was unsuccessful. 
took two years to find him, and then when he was finally brought before the court, he was found not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility, received a sentence of six years with a minimum of four. And that really annoyed me. And that's what started my attention and my involvement in assisting other victims because I, I, I was legally trained. I was never a lawyer, but I was legally trained. I had spent six and a half years at the Solicitor's Admission Board. And one of the things I first found out was that the average victim had no understanding of the law. And so I saw my job as being their advocate, which I've continued to do since 1988. And effectively full-time. If effectively full-time. And, and in fact, for only eight years of my 33 years of, of being an advocate for victims have I received any form of remuneration from government. So the rest of the time I have financed it myself. Moira, you've got a slightly different uh, background. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yes, well, I had a career of um, 34 years working for Corrective Services. Um, started as a probation and parole officer, as they were then called, back in 1979. Um <clears throat> And uh, through a series of promotions and what have you, ended up as the director of what was by then called Community Corrections on the Mid-North Coast. Um, and like most government departments, constant restructures. And uh, uh, with the last one, I realised that um, financially it was far better for me to take a voluntary redundancy, which I didn't really want to do from a personal point of view, but took the redundancy and wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do from there on, except that it wasn't going to be nothing. And I was a little disturbed that I had this 34 years of amassed experience in working with offenders, um, try, trying to make a difference in, in um, people's lives generally. Um, having years of friends and others saying to me, oh, how could you work with those people? And I would respond, how could you stand next to them in the supermarket queue? Because they're just people. And like you, they can change. And they can change the way that they're living their lives. Um, because not necessarily that they're happy with living their lives the way they have been. So I had this 34 years of experience that I felt was just going to be wasted in a sense um, if I didn't do something with it. And coincidentally, somebody drew my attention to um, a call for a community representative on the Sentencing Council, and I thought, ah, that's something I can do to, to contribute. <coughs> so um, I went for an interview. Um, Paul McKnight, who's had quite a distinguished crew career in the sort of policy area in corrections was on the panel and also um, Anthony Wheely. <coughs> so I was a little bit awestruck and thought, yeah, going to have to start swimming really quickly because I'm way out of my depth here. And months later I was offered the, uh, the position, went to my first meeting and I just looked around at the table and I was dumbfounded. There were people around the table for whom I had the greatest respect that I, I didn't think at that stage that I would have really anything significant to contribute. 
So it took me, oh, gee, all of probably 10 minutes, Howard, to find my voice. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but it was it was pretty daunting company. And how, oh. how long were you a member of the council for? Um, for, I think that was 20, end of 2013, 2014. Yep. 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 End of 2013 through to, um, gee, just May, 2022. May, May, May 2022. Yeah. Now, um, I, can I just interrupt yeah. there for a moment? What a surprise. I, I, I would hope that you, um, after being at your first meeting of the Sentencing Council, came to realise what I first realised when we attended the inaugural meeting, that in fact... Even though there were people there, such as directors of DPP and public defenders and judges and people of that type of stature, and with that level of experience, that it was actually quite a cohesive group, and that I hope we did accept you as quickly as other people accepted me. Uh, yes, yeah, I, I, I would say that was definitely the case, and I was certainly encouraged that um, to feel that I did have. A significant contribution to make that, you know, looking at it from 34 years of experience and I might say at this point I still have very strong connections um, with uh, corrective services um, as one of my children is followed in my footsteps as it were. So I, <clears throat> I'm st still abreast of, oh, and, and I still have friends in the organisation, so I'm still abreast of what's occurring in practice. Now the Sentencing Council operates uh, by way of references from the Attorney General. That's it correct. can't mm -hmm. do its own, like go and often explore its own topics. It's dependent upon the reference coming. Um, Howard, you were there for the very first reference. What was that? Well, uh, it, it, was, it was rather interesting because when we originally started, the, the, the big purpose was to try and develop some sort of process which would see consistency in sentencing because there was this move politically towards mandatory sentencing. And so we had to try and find a way of delivering more consistent sentences. But the really interesting thing is that when we all met collectively, it we all decided that perhaps the best way of dealing with the problem was not so much looking at, at that aspect of it, but better explaining structures of sentencing and look at the possibility, and this came from quite out of left field, the abolition of very short-term prison sentences. And then, of course, Alan Abbott, then had the difficulty that we didn't actually have a specific reference for that, and so he then had to go back to Bob Debus and say, listen, there's this consensus of opinion that if people understood the sentencing regime a little better, we could actually achieve something in relation to short sentences, and we'd like a reference on, in relation to that, and then it developed from there. So the concern was that short sentences weren't achieving an effective outcome, was that... Uh, that, that, that was the thing. When, when we first got there, you, you need to appreciate that we had people like Nick Cowdery, who was the director of the DPP. Um, we had Peter Zara, who was the New South Wales public defender. And, and ironically, um, Peter Zara had actually defended the killers of Ken Marsloo's son. And during that trial, which was well before the sentencing council, but during that trial, Ken... Kim was highly emotional and he, well not physically, but he 
he abused Peter and said, yeah, how can you defend people like this? So the first meeting we thought was going to be a little tentative. But by that time, Ken had actually come to understand the importance of proper representation and the need for defenders to be properly defended. And so he understood what Peter's task was. And so there was a movement by people like Nick Cowdery saying, we're not going to be dictated to by politicians you know, to, in relation to mandatory sentencing or the like. Um, Peter Zara clearly was opposed to mandatory sentencing because, as he said, it doesn't take into account the criminogenic needs of, of the accused. But I think the thing that surprised them the most was that we, as the victim's advocate, we actually agreed with them and said one of the greatest problems we have and one of the greatest difficulties for facing politicians is people do not understand how sentencing works and they don't understand how two murderers can appear before the court and one go to jail for life and the other for six years. Part of our job is to educate people and to explain how it works and in that way the people who understand the process can make the changes and we don't need to make it politicians' job. And how did the council set about uh, that process of education? We were very fortunate that at, at the time, and please no disrespect him, um, our, our executive, um, we basically said to them, we need you to go to people like Boxar, you know, the Bureau of Crime Statistics and Research, and we were very fortunate when we were set up as a sentencing council because we had access to Boxar. When the sentencing council was set up in Victoria, they, they didn't have any sort of statistical data, and so it became their function as well, and that made it a lot harder for the Victorian sentencing council. But we, we asked our executive staff to come back and... Get, get us the figures of these people who were going to jail for less than two years and what the reoffending rates were. And, of course, it was through the roof. People were going into jail for three or four months. They were coming out, and within six months, they were back inside, and no one had addressed their issues. But putting that statistical data together, because people thought this, this was perverse, that we would actually be recommending abolition of prison sentences... And, of course, when we did report to government, the, the government actually ind indicated that they didn't feel that politically they could sell it. And that's when we then had to move on to changing periodic detention, getting rid of that, then advancing to um, community correction orders where there was a component of that sentence which dealt with the prisoner's criminogenic needs. So there was a... a, a process of perhaps counselling or going to see a psychologist, being given an education program because people f failed to take into account that at the time when the F Sentencing Council first met, roughly 33% of the prison population were illiterate. So they, they couldn't even complete a Centrelink form. And we said, well, we can address that without having to put them into jail. And if they can fill out a Centrelink form, then they don't need to go and rob the local chemist because they're at least getting a social that's, security that's payment. Just, what you're describing sounds like a process uh, of uh, not quite attrition, 
but a process of changing the system by gradual steps. Is that is that how it, that, it should be seen? Yeah, no, that's very perceptive. Um, because what we, what we were actually envisaging was was quite a radical change to the sentencing process, and because between say nineteen ninety and 2000, there had been this huge move politically of law and order and hanging people from the yard arm and, yeah, for shoplifting. Um, the, the whole movement became so politically driven and not logically driven. And so what we had to do as a sentencing council was not only identify what the problems were, but then to find a process with which politicians would be satisfied that they could actually sell to the electorate. And so it took a great deal of work and a great deal of statistical data to put the information together to say, this is why we say the system doesn't work. And surely you want a person whose criminogenic needs are met because then they're not going to re-offend. And if they're not going to re-offend, then you're not going to have another victim. And surely that's what we're aiming for. And we're... I think you come into the council later than uh, the time, of course, that how it started. Yes. And by the time you came, the changes he's talking about, have they been completed? Uh, was it's interesting listening to Howard talking about it, the, you know, coming from the sentencing council's perspective because uh, there was a lot of movement among practitioners at the same time, internationally as well. So practitioners in it, community corrections officers, um, even uh, legal aid. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a, a life member of the New South Wales Probation and Parole Officers Association, um, and a member of the national body um, equivalent. Um, there was a lot of research, and I just remembering a paper written by former, now former Assistant Commissioner Rosemary Caruana um, in 1998, because it, it was in the context of leading into a restructure and everybody who was applying for the position was was going in and talking about circular number three of 98, which was this best practice in corrections shift that was happening internationally. So we, we usually look across at Canada um, as to what's happening there. We started looking at New Zealand because there's a lot of, there was a lot of really good work going on in New Zealand as well. And it was around the same sorts of things. It was around programs and, um, so instead of, you know, the offender coming in to see me in an interview room and I'm going, okay, Peter, how's it going? What did you do on the weekend? Who did you knock around? Were you drinking? Um, see you next week. Um, which was more of what it was like when I started and it was the focus on supervision. And there was always this supervision and guidance sort of dichotomy and where, you know, where, where you were on that continuum. Um, and that started to crystallise in my thinking and thinking of some of my colleagues into uh, we're actually start the journey sort of setting out a roadmap of what your, what your period under supervision is going to look like and how I as an officer facilitate that journey. So we, and we started talking about, you know, you go and see a psychologist, your alcohol and other drug worker, but, oh, you don't want to do that? All right, well, that's fine. We'll just write back to his honour and tell him that you're not keep. Oh, you do want to do that now. So so we would sort of facilitate the journey. And, so you know, the threat of report was working for many people. Sometimes. I do remember, you know, there's uh, 100 
anecdotes, but I remember this guy when I was the officer in charge of the Windsor office some years ago, and he he came in to see me. He was no longer under supervision. I said, "What are you doing here, mate? You know, you're not you're not back, are you?" And he went, "No, no, 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 I'm not back." Um, he said, "But my brother's here," and I went, "Good, fine, we'll look after him." And he said, "Yeah, well, it won't be you, you." Bitch. And I said, "Really? Why?" And he said, "I told I told him to get the other officer as his supervisor and not to have you." And I said, "Why is that?" And he said, "Because you're so hard." And I said. And yet you're not back. You're not back here. You haven't reoffended. You're not back. And <coughs> light bulb moment said maybe we're all getting to get you. <laughs> so so once we started talking about um, the journey, yes, sometimes it was with the threat of, you know, I'll send the breach report. Um, but sometimes you just have to get across the line and to engage. And so we t- started talking about engaging with the offender and and thinking about what the end of the plan would look like in terms of them not reoffending. So what you're saying, as I understand it, is that both the ideas coming from the Sentencing Council and the ideas amongst those who saw the need for change and corrections were working in the same direction. Pretty much. I think they were operating in parallel. All, all the research internationally was saying... You know, you can't just put people in jail, particularly for short sentences. If you put someone in jail for a short sentence, you don't have them long enough to do anything with them. And you're not going to get them when they're released because they're a short fixed sentence. So if you gave somebody two months in jail, but a year on parole afterwards, then you might be able to do something. So in answer to your question, Peter, I think, yes, by the time I came in, um, those relationships had had been formed and and were um, firmly in place so that so that a lot of those changes had happened uh, the the period probably the first decade of the 2000s was a period of great change in in corrections um, although we hadn't finessed with the you know intensive correction orders and the community no. correction orders we hadn't finessed those by well the they're obviously in development yes in, yes in your minds I was going to ask you, um, you speak of the work that the council was doing. There were, in your time on the council, normally about 14 yes. members. Is yes. That right? Yes. Uh, and it was fantastic. I mean, for instance, one of our reps was Marissa Barrett, okay. who I think I should give her a proper title these days, is Professor <laughs> Marissa Barrett. Such a lovely person, highly educated representative of the Indigenous community, really respected by the Indigenous community. And, of course, we recognise that Indigenous people were well and truly overrepresented in the, in the, in the prison population. We still are. And, and, yes, regrettably still are. And but, even more so in the case of Aboriginal women. Yes. But Marissa had such wonderful insight. And one of the things that has always impressed me about the Sentencing Council is that even though we are a disparate group of people, I think that if all the references we have done, there is only one where we didn't have a, um, a unanimous result because we've all worked through the issues until we've developed a package with which everyone was happy. 
and we felt that it was actually going to serve the community well. Well, I was going to ask you, how does this, in practical terms, how does the council work? There's 14 members of the council, but then there's a staff mm. behind those 14 yep. who prepare research material and gather information for members of the council. That's right. To be a member of the sentencing council, you literally attend half a day a month. And people go, this is a really soft job. And you go, yeah, except there's like a week's reading yeah. for every single meeting. And you know, um, here on here on my little tablet, I've got all these all these little orange boxes all represent a, a meeting where, and I remember Ken Marsler saying this very early in the piece, our executive officers attached to the Sentencing Council were destroying forests by the bucket load because we every month we would get a white folder with over 300 pages of data and information and sentencing trends oh, and all that. And we're going, we are wasting so much paper. Fortunately, we're now doing that all electronically. Yeah. But the amount of reading, because the executive staff do all the research, they give it to We've got to read it. We, we have to absorb it all. And then we go, okay, well, this is the problem I identify. And someone else will say, yes, well, okay, as public defender, one of the things that I find difficult is this, this, and this. And we go, okay, so we need to factor yeah. that in. Yeah. And so, yes, it's um, it, it's a lot more than turning up for three hours a month. And the executive staff, the, the sentencing council just wouldn't work without um, oh. the executive staff. And can I say, and I don't wish this to sound as patronising as it possibly does, but all our chairs, right from the very beginning, have never admitted to how much bloody work they do pulling all the information together because I, I know how much I read and I, I know how much is put before you, for example, Peter, and yeah, that hasn't changed. And so I know that the... It's almost a short straw being made the, the, the chair of the, the sentencing council. <laughs> Fortunately, you and I don't have the qualifications for it. Exactly. <laughs> Can I ask you, Maura, um, in your time on the council, you were involved in multiple in, uh, inquiries. Yeah. I've actually got a list here, I think, of the reports that you were involved in. I hope it's the same as well, my list. I'm not going to ask you that quite. <laughs> but uh, tell me, are there any reports that particularly stand out for you in the work that you did in your time on the council? The domestic violence offenders, uh, because, yeah, having dealt with domestic violence... Um, perpetrators. Perpetrators. And it's the really it's the only offence type that community that I can think of, that community corrections staff deal with victims as well because we do home visits. Sorry, I still say we. I should say they. Um, so they're engaged with the family. They're looking. They're doing collateral checks with often the victim of the offence. Community corrections staff go into the home. They see the home. They see the conditions. Um, and I've worked with domestic violence offenders all through Western Sydney um, and all through the Mid-North Coast um, because sometimes even as a director you have to do the frontline work because if you haven't, as you're experiencing, if you haven't got the staff, you haven't got the staff. So um, so that probably um, was one of the, the standouts um, for me. Um, 
one, the victim's involvement in sentencing was also a bit of a standout too because it, it just comes at a whole different angle from where I'm, my professional practice was, apart from the, the domestic violence. Um, although Corrective Services was involved in um, launching restorative justice and that um, I was peripherally involved in that at, at some stage. When you say that that issue came from a different perspective to the one that you've been working with professionally all, all of your mm. professional life, you're, did you find it difficult to look at the issue from the other side, as it were? Well, it's not really the the other side. Mm. It's it's um, it's more in a practice sense. It's very difficult to sit with an offender who has murdered someone or sexually assaulted a child or, or whatever they've done um, and dwell on the victim. To, to safeguard yourself emotionally, um, you need to focus on the offender and the job that needs to be done by the offender and with the offender yeah, to reduce their to, behavior to prevent another victim or to at least reduce the sure. likelihood mm. um, so and, and I was in a situation in at, at, at one point in my life where I was away on holidays funnily enough in Port Macquarie um, and the resort at which we were staying um, had the most horrific thing happened um, in a, a, a child about the same age as my daughter was then, which was about five, was snatched in the middle of the night from a room um, and assaulted um, and put back in the room. And the, it, it was the most horrific, horrific offence. And I was on the spot. And if we had been assigned to that room, it could have been my daughter. To then sit down with the next child sex offender... And not think about that, um, yeah, it was, was, took quite a lot of will. So you can, a community corrections officer can think about the victim but not necessarily dwell on the victim. So when you, we started talking about victims' involvement in sentencing, that was just a different compartment for me, not, not so much a, a different side of the argument. And in looking into that different compartment, did you find it difficult to joining the other members of the council and coming up with recommendations? No, I, I, I don't recall it as being difficult. Um, I think, I think they're very considered... That that table has brilliant people sitting around it um, from all facets, Not and, and not only the... Um, the defence and the prosecution, but you've also got the the academics who who bring such clarity sometimes to those discussions, mm. um, and uh, and the, the former members of the judiciary. Um, I remember uh, one one member particularly struggled with the fact that community corrections staff release people from their supervisory obligations prior to the end of their community corrections order and that was always quite an issue 
which I consistently, I think, said, Howard, yep. was underpinned by research that you don't keep people in the criminal justice system too long or you turn them into crooks. Mm. So, so I, I don't think we ever completely agreed on that subject. You both speak of the people who chaired the council and other, others who provided specialist expertise. Did you always feel that, notwithstanding that you both come from different aspects, that your voice was effectively heard in the council's deliberations? I have never once felt that anything I said was ignored. Um, I always felt that whoever was chairing gave every one of us a voice. Yes, I've always felt that I was um, treated with the greatest respect. Um, whether uh, the chair agreed or other people in the council agreed with uh, my view, um, I, I yes, I felt my voice was heard. I think one of the struggles for me was um, the tension between leaning, leaning towards over-regulation and achieving consistency in sentencing practice. Um, and when when you came in as the chair, and I, I forget what the discussion was about, I thought, oh, this sounds like we're not going to lean in the over-regulation area because uh, I, think, I, I think if you over-regulate for instance, sentencing. Um, it doesn't rule out with, flexibility. Without, yeah, without any um, wriggle room, or room to navigate, taking account of particular circumstances, uh, then you you lose a lot in in the process. And 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 sentencing to me has to be a, a humane process uh, that takes account of all those factors. And you can't do that with, you know, you've got two shoplifters before you, their circumstances are going to be entirely different. Um, one's possibly stealing the microwave for greed and the other one's possibly stealing the butter for food. How do you treat them the same? That emphasises, of course, the significance of what uh, Howard said earlier about education and understanding the process. Yep. Because... When you come to sentence, you have to consider the circumstances of the offender, but also there's a need for a sense of justice to be felt by the victim and beyond that by the general community, mm. which just underlines how complex it is. the sentencing process is. And can I say that I recently appeared before the State Parole Authority in relation to an offender who had a sentence which consisted of a non-parole period and a parole period. Um, this offender, for whatever reason, has chosen not to follow the path of rehabilitation and has been offered a number of programs and, and the like and, and has just declined them. But when I was addressing um, the State Parole Authority, I pointed out that under the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act, we talk about the purposes of sentencing, you know, and the purposes of sentencing being punishment and rehabilitation. And I said, but it would be naive for us to think that the non-parole period 
is that portion which is punishment and then the parole period is the, the portion for rehabilitation. In the ideal circumstances, the moment a person goes into custody, they should be on that journey towards rehabilitation. Unfortunately, that falls to the prisoner to make the decision as to when that delineation takes place. Howard, um, I asked Maura what stands out in her mind as reports that she was involved in. Are there any that stand out particularly for you? Uh, look, I, I, I think the very fact that we were able to achieve a situation where we removed periodic detention, which was clearly not working, and moved to um, intensive correction orders and community correction orders, and providing a better way of dealing with people's offending behaviour. Uh, I, I think that that is a quite stark example as to the benefits of the Sentencing Council because you are not only addressing the needs of victims, you are addressing the needs of offenders. And what you are achieving in that process is making the community safe. And if that is what you put on your shingle, I think you've done a pretty good job. Both of you, of course, have had long careers in your respective Fields. professions and your respective fields. Um, I guess along that journey there'd be many occasions where the outcome was not what you would have preferred to see. Um, but I assume also that in, on many occasions the outcomes have been very rewarding. Well, when I first came to vic victims advocacy, I think I was typical of a 33-year-old male. Um, I was nowhere near as well educated as I thought I was. Um, I, th I thought I understood the world. And then when I lost my mate and, and saw how the legal system treated that whole process, um, it, it made me angry. And I then realised that that anger could be one of two things. It could be dangerous and destructive, or I could turn it round and make a difference. And I decided not to allow it to be destructive and to turn it into an advantage. And so over that last 34 years, I have assisted so many people who have lost children to homicide, um, who have lost loved ones in the most appalling of motor vehicle accidents. I've assisted families through the most appalling of sexual assault and constant institutionalised abuse. And I get Christmas cards from those people and they say thank you. You, you can't put a price on that. Maura, what about you? I've always said that, you know, success in, in community corrections is, is a difficult thing to measure. Um, there was a professor, Todd Clear, many, many years ago, went to one of his pre presentations. I think he was from, he was from the States, anyway, I can't remember which university. And, and he would talk about running a program. This would have been during the 90s when we were starting thinking this way about running programs. And he would talk about, um, you know, show me, show me your results from your program in terms of reoffending, um, in terms of attendance even at the program. And, and he said, oh, you've got a, you know, 35% um, result on that, you know, positive result on that program. Well, yeah, not interested. Show me one where you've got a 10% result because that means that you're really dealing with the hard edge stuff. So how you measure you know, what's a success. Christmas cards, those offenders who 
who ring you years later and say, do you remember you said... And you go, oh, yes, sure do, Peter, because it sounds like something I would have said. And they go, well, that made the difference. And uh, one offender in particular springs to mind who, who, who had been through, she, she was really institutionalised. She'd been through um, juvenile uh, detention as a, a, a teenager. She wasn't much more than a teenager when I first met her. She was getting picked up for drive whilst disqualified every other day <laughs> and she rang me years later and said g'day I've got a job and I'm like wow that's great because we had talked about what was realistic and what was unrealistic and so forth and I said where are you working she said Wally's Rickers <laughs> it's perfect absolutely perfect she said you know what else I've got my license so those are the sorts of things that I count as a success and from the perspective of both of you, is the system working now better than it was when you started in your careers and when you started with the Sentencing Council? Uh, are, we, are we seeing positive change that's leading to good outcomes? As far as I'm concerned, when, when, I, when I go back and I look at, for instance, the law on diminished responsibility where the offender in my case received a substantially minimise sentence because of that defence. And that defence is no longer available in the, in its in, the, in that form. Um, but the way we deal with criminal matters today is far more efficient. It is, fa- it is far more equitable than it was when, we, when I first agitated for the rights of victims. Uh, and the recognition of victims in that process is absolutely fantastic. Well, what about you? I don't think we've got anywhere near to where we need to get to with managing Indigenous offenders. Um, I, I was just talking with uh, one of my children, the one who's followed my footsteps um, just last night, about uh, just come back from Africa, and um, and we were talking about education and uh, the impact of, of education and different ways of looking at education. And I'm not just talking about academic, but the whole person. Uh, Which sort of led us into, imagine if we could do this sort of thing and build this sort of an institution, school, uh, in Brewarren or Barrowville or Kempsey or Bellbrook or, you know, and we really focused on um, uh, melding the cultures and using the best of both cultures, we would hopefully then reduce the amount of Indigenous offending if we could do that. And it, and it needs, it's, it's not about the criminal justice system on its own. Um, health, education, all the sort of close the gap um, issues, uh, and we still haven't got anywhere near an, a holistic approach to managing Indigenous offenders because we're not dealing with the other stuff first. So having said which, um, I think during sort of the period 2000 to 2013 uh, when I left, I I saw massive leaps and bounds that we were going ahead in terms of recognising that you need to fund things properly 
So when the drug court, I think I mentioned this to you before, when the drug court was opening and I was the area manager at Parramatta at that stage and they were talking about it being Parramatta, I was driving to work hearing this on the news for the first time mm. and, and going, yeah, well, I guess who, we know who's going to get stuck with dealing with all that. Well, I think there's been a recognition that if you're going to introduce change, you need to support it properly. Got to be resourced. Got to be properly resourced. And corrective services, um, and I'll probably credit former Commissioner uh, Peter Severin with uh, uh, achieving it, the proper resourcing, recognising the talent within and enabling and facilitating that talent to develop the sorts of things that we're talking about now. Well, it would interest you to know that we're going to interview Peter Severin later in this series and he can talk about the things that... Uh, yes. That he introduced into the system. Peter, can I say that e- even though um, I, I, can, I can die being satisfied that I've had an impact on the criminal legal system over the last 30 odd years, but if we have learnt anything in the last two years during COVID, one of the things that we have to learn is that. We can be quite smug about what we have achieved, but things change and they change daily and sometimes they change rapidly. And you need an institution like the Sentencing Council to identify those changes um, and adapt to them to allow the criminal legal system to continue to develop because it is a constant developing institution and it, and it needs that type of impact because without it we don't have proper balance. Thank you and can I thank you both for joining us this morning for this fascinating discussion. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, everyone thanks you for the work that you did for the Sentencing Council but more importantly I suppose for the work that you've both done uh, throughout your professional lives. Uh, thank you indeed. Thanks, Peter. It's been great. You have been listening to Howard Brown and Moira McGrath, who are former members of the Sentencing Council. This podcast, Sentencing Explained, is brought to you by the New South Wales Sentencing Council. The teacher's guide to the podcast and further information about the council is available on the Sentencing Council's website. I'm Peter McClellan. Thank you for listening.